Welcome to the Social Impact Pulse, a podcast where we aim to cultivate intimate conversations with entrepreneurs working at the intersection of the sustainable livelihoods and lifestyle sectors. Each episode is a no-filter conversation with entrepreneurs where we dig deep into the values they hold dear and how that molds and shapes the social impact they strive for through their organizations. In this series, we're excited to be partnering with the Rise Artisan Fund, an impact investment portfolio that invests in early-stage artisan enterprises, creating sustainable livelihoods for rural communities with few economic alternatives. We'll be speaking with social enterprises that are a part of their portfolio. And for more information about the Rise Artisan Fund, check out our show notes. In this episode, we are joined by Rachel Fowler, founder of Tonley, a zero-waste sustainable fashion brand. It is a maker-led community that values inclusivity, honesty, and reciprocity, and creates a purposeful future for fashion, one that is restorative, regenerative, and just. We'll hear about Rachel's journey that led to the creation of a sustainable fashion brand, how she cultivates impact, the importance of challenging existing models of investment in social enterprises, and how she'd like Tony to be remembered. On with the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. My name is Rachel Fowler, and I'm one of the co-creators of Tonle. We are a zero-waste and sustainable fashion brand and manufacturer. We are primarily based in Cambodia, where we take scraps and cut waste from the larger garment industry and transform it into beautiful, uh, sustainable new products from apparel to homewares to gift items. And we sell our products through a range of channels from wholesale to other independent boutiques to larger brick and mortar stores to online and also through a small amount of contract manufacturing. Well, Rachel, could you share with us your journey in sustainable fashion and how the brand Tonely came to be? So I moved to Cambodia in 2008 after graduating from the Maryland Institute College of Art with a degree in textile and fiber art to do research on fair trade and sustainability through a Fulbright Fellowship. And I had been kind of a social activist from a young age. And I was really, you know, I'd been making my clothes since I was young, learning from my grandmother and my mother how to sew. And I always knew that there was something wrong with the fashion and garment industry because I knew how long it would take to make a piece of clothing. And I knew there was no possible way that people could be be paid fairly to make these garments that I saw, you know, being sold even in high school. And I also grew up kind of around the era of the 90s sweatshop protests against Kmart and Nike. So I had these vague, you know, notions in my mind that there was something wrong with the garment industry. But I didn't have a tangible understanding of what that was. And so in college, I pursued a more fine art background and was kind of using art as a tool for social activism. But I came into contact with fair trade and started learning about fair trade and then wanted to understand further how that could be applied to the garment industry. Because typically, you know, at that time, I was seeing fair trade more in terms of chocolate and coffee and food and starting to understand a little bit more about supply chains through that. But the fair, fair trade being applied to a, uh, to a garment context was few and far between. So I applied to do a Fulbright Fellowship in Cambodia because there were a lot of handicraft organizations in Cambodia that were trying to practice fair trade principles. 
And Cambodia was also a country where a lot of large-scale garment manufacturing was happening. A big part of that was because of post-Vietnam War efforts to redevelop the country, be it sustainable or not, and also through global supply chains that were largely built through a colonial legacy. And so Cambodia was a really interesting place to do that research because you really saw both sides of this industry. You saw the small-scale handicraft organizations that had really been around, you know, that these practices that had really been around for centuries and artisans still working in this traditional way that they had been, you know, for generations. And on the other hand, you also have this mainstream large garment manufacturer that's primarily driven by European and American brands that is being exported. And a lot of that waste and a lot of that, um, you know, secondary impact was being put on Cambodia. And so during my year of research, I was able to work with a number of groups and artisans who were trying to practice fair trade in various levels, some successfully, some unsuccessfully, and learning what was working for them and not working for them, both in terms of their craft and what they could market and how they could sell those products, but also what types of business models were working for them and and not working for them. And around 2008, that was also, you know, I got there basically right before the recession started. So I also got to witness, you know, the toll that that took on the garment industry at large through the eyes of manufacturers, through the eyes of, of workers, and also through the global market for fair trade and sustainable products, which also quite plateaued at that time. Basically, the recession catapulted fast fashion into the mainstream because large-scale marketers realized they could capitalize on these quickly produced cheap garments um, because people still wanted to be trendy and they still wanted to be you know, fashion forward. And shopping kind of became a form of therapy for a lot of people in North America and Europe but it needed to be cheap. So these companies essentially capitalized on that and created fast fashion. It was, it was already in the works before 2008, but 2008 is really what drove that. So I ended up staying in Cambodia and working with different artisans and ultimately decided to start my own business um, because I saw that there was this gap between you know fair trade and ethically made products, but a lot of them were kind of more handicraft or gift items not really catering to the kind of international fashion audience. And on the other hand, you had this, you know, rising fast fashion, which didn't even have a term for it at the time. I mean, at the time we weren't even talking about eco fashion or, you know, ethical fashion had just started to come into the public consciousness, but there was this kind of gap in the market. And I I was living in Cambodia and I was like, you know, I can't even find clothes that I want to buy that I feel like are made, that are made in line with my values. So I decided to make it. So I started working with a group of, of women there and we launched the brand, you know, really slowly at first. We started with one boutique in Phnom Penh and then another one in Siem Reap. And we started selling kind of to the local market and the tourist market. And it really kind of grew up organically from there. And in terms of using remnant and waste materials, you know, I had always been interested in recycling and upcycling. And I had done a lot of DIY projects with my own clothing and thrift shopping and so forth. And So that was what I kind of applied to the first version of this business because it was what was available. And what I learned is that there really wasn't a lot of raw materials that were produced in Cambodia. A lot of the materials were being imported from other countries and then produced in Cambodia 
And then again, as fast fashion had started to grow, you know, the waste was also growing exponentially. So we started seeing these piles of scrap fabrics winding up in the markets. And you could sometimes they had labels on them from the companies who were producing them. And so you could see, you know, oh, this is from, I'm not going to name names, but XYZ, you know, large fashion brand, you can fill in the blank. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, so what I realized is, you know, there's this huge amount of waste that's piling up and people don't even know about the pre-consumer side of waste. So this was around, you know, from 2008 to 2010. And so the brand really started to grow kind of organically from there. The first iteration of the business was actually called Kyokuche, which means bright green or fresh in Khmer. And it's also a, a color that's only used to refer to natural green um, in nature. And so we eventually rebranded as Tone Lei in 2014. Um, that's another story. But that's about, that's about a, <laughs> a good synopsis of my journey. And so what prompted the rebrand in 2014? And I'd love to know more about the name Tonely as well and, and the meaning behind it. By 2014, we had been going as Kyokuche from, yeah, for already about seven years. And, you know, the brand, I think, was really beautiful and had a lot of meaning to it. But it, it had kind of reached a point where it was hard to continue to build, you know, internationally with both the name and kind of the designs and, and so forth that we had built. And also, I had to kind of evaluate, you know, for myself... Um, what I wanted, because I think I had built this business a lot around like what was working in that local context for the people we were working with at the time, but I wasn't really taking care of myself. And it was complicated because I think, you know, when you're, you know, living in places where there is a lot of challenge and, you know, I think, I think I was also, I had a lot of white guilt, you know, of seeing like what you know, my country had done in Cambodia and was continuing to do, but also recognizing that I'm going to do the best I can to, you know, try to rectify these harms that have been done, but I also can't solve all these problems on my own. And I can't take that on myself. It's not really healthy for me to take it on myself. And it's also not healthy for me to go around acting like a martyr and a savior, because ultimately these problems are very systemic. And so I think a big part of the rebrand was just evolving from kind of honestly an NGO or kind of savior model to, to a, a real business that was like, no, this has to work for everybody. And if it doesn't, if it's not financially sustainable, if it's not emotionally sustainable, if it's not reciprocal and based in kind of this concept of reciprocity where this has to work for everyone, if not, then maybe it shouldn't exist. Right. Like I don't want to create something. I don't want to be running something that is dependent on saviorism, essentially. So I think a big part of the rebrand was that and just like, really, how do we transform this into a working business model that works for everybody, including myself, because I was really burnt out. And alongside of that, I was I was a bit forced into it because I ended up getting into a business partnership that didn't um, work out. And so and part of the reason I got into that business partnership is because I felt like I needed help. And I was kind of, because I was really burnt out, I wasn't really thinking as strategically as I should have been. Long story short, in order to extract myself from that, um, I did have to think, okay, well, you know, how how do I rebrand this and, and change this in a way that is going to really, 
be sustainable in the long term where I can take care of myself and everybody else is feeling taken care of. And, and no one's doing this out of guilt. They're doing it because they want to and because they believe in it. And at point at which it stops working and it doesn't work for everyone, then we stop. You know, like, I don't think that a business should continue to go on if it's not actually producing the results that benefit everybody. You know, the, unfortunately, the business partnership split, ha- like kind of forced me into that, but it was a really good place to come to because it did really, really reforce me to reimagine the business in a way that was sustainable for everybody, not just environmentally sustainable because that's the baseline, but also sustainable financially, emotionally, and so forth. And so the name Tonle means river. And, you know, for me at the time, I somewhat chose it because I had a list of Khmer words that I thought, you know, sounded beautiful. And Tonle was on there and I was brainstorming with my team, all these different words. And Tonle was the one that just resonated with everybody, you know, and and I also asked people who were, you know, Khmer speakers and English speakers and, and different languages, you know, how it sounded to them. But I think that ultimately it kind of chose me as well, even though I didn't recognize it at the time because rivers are such a symbol of rebirth and regeneration and cyclical, the cyclical, cyclical nature. And in Cambodia as well, there's this one river. Um, so the Tonle Sap, it flows through uh, Phnom Penh and um, goes up to the Tonle Sap Lake, which is in Siem Reap. And this river actually is uh, kind of the lifeblood of the country. It's a very fertile fishing ground and a lot of the country's food source comes from this river. And each year, the river actually changes direction every single year at the same time, which is pretty amazing. And they have a a festival called the Water Festival that celebrates this transition. The reason it it changes direction is because um, it's very flat. And so during the dry season, um, the water table of the lake is going down. And during the rainy season, you know, the water table is going up and it flows towards the sea. And so it it shifts direction. And this shifting actually is what creates this really fertile fishing ground. It also floods all the plains around it to create the rice harvest. You know, I think in retrospect, at the time, you know, I don't know why it was chosen. It was chosen in conversation with my team and everybody, you know, feeling like that resonated with them. But in retrospect, it was the perfect name for the transition and everything we were going through and this idea of reciprocity at building a business that operates in harmony with all of us that we can all succeed with. So Rachel, you touched on this a little bit, but I would love to dig in a bit more. How do you cultivate impact at a personal level? And then how does that manifest itself through the brand? I love that question. I, I think there's there's a lot of conversation right now about, you know, systems change and how you know, individuals can't do a lot, but you, you know, we have to focus on the systemic level. And on some level, I agree with that, but I think it's not an either or it's, it's really a both and, and I I think that it has to start with personal change. So I think that, you know, trying to buy organic or, you know, go plastic free, those are all ways to create, you know, cultural shifts. And even though, you know, just skipping a plastic bag might not actually help you to really make a big difference it does help you to cultivate that change in your personal life, which then allows you to start thinking about the systems. And, you know, every time you have that friction, which is like, oh, shoot, like I just got three straws. And, you know, it's it's like all those points of friction that make you stop and think are what are going to help us shift to create these systemic changes within culture. And so for me personally, it's, it's about that interchange between 
you know, personal change and systemic change. That's not necessarily just about feeling guilty when you can't do the right thing, but recognizing how hard it is to do the right thing in a system that is really violating our collective consciousnesses over and over again and creating cognitive dissonance between who we think we are and who we want to be versus what society is allowing us to be. Personally, you know, I think it's really important to try to live out your values as much as possible, but then recognize that systems are also in play that particularly for the most marginalized, make it harder for them to actually do that. And so to, we, we need to kind of put pressure on who is really has the most power to change these things and who can make those changes. You know, for example, like, I think that, you know, just as an example, like Amazon, you know, I I try to not shop on Amazon, right. Um, because it's, it, to me, Amazon is, is really a good reflection of everything that's really wrong with America and like corporate law and trade policies and, and all kinds of stuff. Like as a consumer, you know, a lot of times it's, it's becoming harder and harder because, you know, Amazon has already put so many small businesses and so many shops out of business that I would rely on to get, you know, basic goods. Right. And so even just going to the hardware store, like I even would rather go to my local hardware store and try to buy something, but they probably get a lot of that stuff on Amazon too. Right. Or through Alibaba or some other platform at the end of the day, though, like Amazon could easily make a huge shift to transform their packaging or invest in, or or to just, you know, evolve the ways that they um, purchase and evolve the ways that they um, have proliferated, you know, cheap and fast shipping and, you know, things like that. And so they could make those changes. They have the power and the money to do so, but they choose not to. So putting that pressure back on the individual consumer, so then have to try to make better choices when those choices are becoming fewer and farther between, is really where we need to focus our energy. So it's rather than like, yes, I think personal change is important, but it's also like, how do we then use that personal change to motivate us to see where the inequalities are in the systems and put the pressure on the right players because they have the power and the money to do so. And I think that putting that pressure back on individuals is actually a distraction from the fact that during the pandemic, some of these companies have become so much more monopolized and so much more resourced. Meanwhile, the people who were already trying to be sustainable and ethical have actually suffered even more. I think, you know, it's a bit of a balance. And I try to, you know, live a sustainable life as much as possible. For example, um, you know, I've been trying to reduce my own plastic consumption. I buy in bulk and I, you know, um, I eat a vegan diet. I also have been growing my own vegetables and trying to like grow as much of my own food as possible. Part of that I do because it brings me joy and it sustains me and it sustains my community and recognizing that on some level, like we have to sustain ourselves in a way that allows us to sustain the environment and sustain others. And so, and that has to be, you know, rooted in, in the concept of reciprocity for me you know, not that I'm helping someone else or they're helping me, but are, are we creating systems and are we contributing to systems that allow us all to be sustained in a way rather than extracting? Well, shifting gears to some of the nuts and bolts of the business side of running a social enterprise, I wondered if you could share some examples of how you've grown and scaled. 
And perhaps let's just start with how you define scale as a brand and what are some of those investments you've made along the way, as well as what are some of the challenges that have come with working in this space as a social enterprise? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated. I think scale is a really complicated question, you know, because on some level, scaling impact is kind of a oxymoron, I think, because ultimately like scale is what brought us all of the problems, you know, that we're currently facing. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because historians have said that the world is becoming less violent and more just in some ways. But I think as, as capitalism has intensified, you know, we are really getting to a, an unsustainable point. And so, so, you know, sustainable brands scaling isn't necessarily helping unless larger corporations are also practicing degrowth. And so, you know, one of the challenges I have with the sustainable fashion industry in general is that there's a lot of emphasis on growing sustainable brands, but not on degrowing <laughs> the large corporations impact. And, and ultimately, you know, even within larger corporations, you know, they're putting a lot of effort into scaling their sustainability efforts. And overall, they're actually growing their unsustainable efforts as well. So they're the growth of their sustainability has has not outpaced the growth of their unsustainable channels. And so I guess asking me about, yeah, how I feel about scale is is quite complicated because I do believe that, you know, Tone is making, you know, we we are doing things in the least harmful way possible as as far as it's possible for us. You know, but we do, because capitalism is an unsustainable system, we are participating in unsustainable practices because there's no way to avoid it. So ultimately, I would like to see, you know, I, I think, yeah, for companies like Tonley to grow would be a win because hopefully we're displacing some of the consumption that's unsustainable. But I think simply growing sustainable companies, it is important, okay? You know, every single purchase that people buy from Tonley, it really makes a difference to our team and to our processes and allows us to be sustainable in the future. But all that being said, like, if we're not also focusing on reducing the harm of the bigger industry, you know, you know so like, again, it, it's hard running a business because I feel like I'm forced to participate in systems that I don't believe in. So for example, you know, shipping, like I think FedEx is like an incredibly unethical company. I try to avoid using them at all costs, but sometimes I, I have to, because it's the only way to get a product to somebody. Right. You know, I mean, FedEx, for example, the owner of FedEx wrote Trump's tax bill. And in the year after that tax bill came into play, FedEx paid no taxes. Totally paid more taxes than FedEx. And that actually, it's really insulting, right? And it's, and these kind of tax bills are what's destroyed or is what's allowing companies to monopolize. It's allowing companies to put small businesses out and makes it harder for small businesses who are really trying to practice sustainability to actually, you know, stay afloat. So I disagree with that on so many levels, but I feel like I'm forced to participate in supporting companies like that. So I want to see, again, the both and of supporting small and sustainable businesses when people can, but also keeping our eye on the bigger systems, like the politicians that we vote for are really important because if we bring politicians into power, you know, who are enacting trade laws that allow companies to continue practicing these unethical practices around the globe, 
that we don't even allow for workers in the U.S., you know, that's a problem too. And it also is, is actually a much bigger problem than let's try to find more sustainable brands because the sustainable brands are out there, but you can't find them because of monopolies like Google and Facebook and Amazon. <laughs> they're, they're who's preventing, you know, businesses like Tomei from succeeding. So yeah, I guess I didn't really fully answer your question, but I think scale is a complicated question. If we want to grow our impact, we also have to focus on, on harm reduction in the bigger picture. I really appreciate your, your response and, and candor. And just reflecting on what you said, I recognize that so much of the focus on scale is coming from the investors wanting to see scale. You know, I, I would love to say that I think a lot of this does come back to investors and how they invest their money. Because if an investor has made their money investing in companies that have actually directly hampered the competition of sustainable businesses... You know, for example, I mean, Google and Facebook, as they've gotten much more monopolized, you know, they are favoring, they, these are these are ad revenue platforms, right? And so Tonley, for example, you know, we used to get a lot of organic traffic from both platforms. And as the market for so-called sustainable products has increased, Google and Facebook can profit more off advertising for bigger companies. And so if other companies are essentially competing for keywords that we have always you know, succeeded with organically, they're essentially depressing our search results in favor of companies that are operating far less sustainably. And yet they have the budget to spend. So long story short, you know, I think, and, and the other thing is too, like these companies, maybe they have like 1% of their production is supposedly sustainable. However, you want to just define that. Cause I, I think a lot of it is, is not really sustainable, but they're putting a hundred percent of their marketing towards their, their so-called sustainable line. But that sustainable line is also, you know, helping them grow their marketing for all the other 99% that's not sustainable. And so I think that, you know, we really have to think about, I think for investors at the end of the day, like the, the capital systems that they've employed have actually fueled fast fashion, right? So unfortunately, you know, creating a whole new regenerative supply chain is like a 10-year process. You can't, you know, put $100,000 in and expect it to grow to a million in three years time. That's not how sustainable supply chains work. And so investors, you know, I found a lot of times investors, they want to invest in brands, they want to invest in tech, they want to invest in IP, they want to invest in intangible value because it's less messy than supply chains. It's less, it's less difficult than working with a whole team of people. But at the end of the day, the real sustainability work is being done by the manufacturers, by the makers, by the farmers. Nobody wants to invest in that. They want to invest in IP because at the end of the day, that's what's going to be profitable for them. So what I really want to challenge investors with is that, you know, we can't just take the same models of investing and apply them to sustainable impact. And we can't just say, because I've, I've literally have had investors come to me and say, you know, I want to, you to basically produce the same market returns, but I also want you to demonstrate to me how you're impacting the lives of a million people, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, that's actually not how it works because at least in fashion, investors have made their money by extracting, by exploiting. And so you can't just turn around and it, it is the system, the capital system that extracts, that makes profit from extracting resources in talent and time and labor. That is what has gotten these massive returns and is continuing to get these massive returns. 
And so we can't just take that same method of investing and apply it to impact-driven businesses. And again, a lot of this has to come back to creating less harm and reducing the harm that's already been done through changing policy, through changing the way that we invest, through changing the expectations of investors. Frankly, I would like to see an investor come to me and say, hey, I'm actually willing to take less of a return because I made my money in X, Y, and Z way that was exploitative and I need to return some of that money back. And I feel like there are very few investors who are willing to acknowledge how their investments have actually contributed to this exploitation. And I would really like to see that change. That's brilliant. That's great. So reflecting back on your journey as a sustainable brand, what are three moments that have made you proud? So I would say first thing was when we had to go through this partnership breakup and rebrand, it was pretty rough on me emotionally and personally. And there was a lot of other things at play. But at the time, I had gone back to the US to go to Christmas for my family vacation. And I also had a breakup with my romantic partner of four years at the same time. And I was feeling pretty adrift. And, you know, I had already decided to rebrand the company as Tonle, but I was really thinking like, what am I doing? Like my life is like a, a mess right now. And I really believe in this, but like, I'm exhausted. I'm burnt out. I like, I don't have anything else to give. Like I'm completely empty. <laughs> and I had conversations with a bunch of my team members and, you know, and I said, do you, do you really want to keep doing this? Because if you don't, it's fine. And like, I, I was kind of feeling like I was afraid that if they lost their jobs, you know, they would be in a bad situation. It's and several people said to me, I know I can get another job. That's not why I work here. And, you know, they basically said, because of the skills that I've gotten through working with Kyoko J, like, actually, other people are trying to hire me and I'm like very employable now and so forth. But, you know, we love working together as a team and we want to keep working on this and we believe in it. And so that's what really motivated me to like, be like, okay, if they can, if they are doing this because they want to, and not because they're, they have to. And that partially was what kind of fueled this evolution to like, totally as a group of people, we believe in each other. We believe in working together and in the mission of what we're doing, but we're doing it because we want to, and we believe in it, not because people are feeling guilted into buying these products or people are feeling guilted into being here because it's the only job that they can get. It's actually out of choice and out of free will. And that was a really proud moment for me because it was like, when I first started the business, it definitely felt like I had, I felt like I was doing it out of guilt. I did love my team and I loved what I was doing. And when I realized like, I don't have to do this, but I want to do it. And other people also felt that, right? I don't have to do this, but I want to do it. That was really like, motivating for me and really helped me to get reinvigorated and be like, okay, now I can really rethink, not what do I have to do, but what do I want to do? <laughs> you know? And, you know, how can we evolve this business in a way that people are motivated by free will and out of like a desire to create something beautiful and meaningful. So that was number one. And I think number two, I think I'll just say two, if that's okay. <laughs> number two, I would say a similar conversation at the beginning of the pandemic where you know, we had in the first week of, so March 15th is usually our biggest delivery date for wholesale. And that was also the day that literally retailers around the country closed down and people were in complete panic. They didn't, 
you know, and a lot of our retailers, they're small businesses as well. They're like small brick and mortar stores, you know, a lot of them, their families are also dependent on that income and so forth. So I don't blame them, but people were really freaked out. And so a lot of people canceled their orders and mind you, you know, we don't collect payment until when orders are ready to ship, we collect payment. And so we had two months of orders that we've been producing that we were about to collect payment for. 90% of them were either canceled or postponed, which is effectively the same thing for us because it means we don't have the cash flow coming in. And people were just like, well, my store is closed. I can't even get there. So I can't accept this order. And I like, I felt for them, but I was also like, I have a whole team of people to pay. And like, what am I supposed to do? Right. So I thought like we might go bankrupt. I contacted a few members of the team and I, I just was like, I, I really don't know what to do. Like, there's no way we're going to be able to make payroll. And we have no money coming in. I have no idea like when things are going to reopen. And then within a couple of weeks time frame, you know, I was talking to everybody and at the same time, like a lot of factories in Cambodia were closing down and people were, you know, not being paid for like two months of wages and so forth because the brands, larger brands also canceled their orders to factories. And so our team were seeing like everybody in their communities were losing their jobs. And the pandemic hadn't even really hit Cambodia, but they were, you know, feeling this economic aftershock and we didn't know how long it was going to continue and so forth. So I, you know, talked to everybody and I was like, I really don't know what's going to happen because, and also investors were like, I, I talked to a bunch of investors and, and they were all like, no, 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 we can't give out any more funding and so forth. Like, and, and this also was very frustrating because it's like ethical, ethical investors who are like, oh, we have to protect our, you know, savings and our money and stuff. And it's like, this is a time when people need funding like more than ever, right? <laughs> and yeah, so couldn't get any money. had no idea how, you know, we were going to do it. So I talked to them and they were like, you know what? We really believe in this. And like, we're going to be bored if we're just hanging out at home. So like, we want, and we, 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 we love the team. We want to just come into work and like try to make it work. And even if it doesn't work out, we're going to just give it our best shot. And again, that was like another moment of like, of course, like in a normal situation, you'd be like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get paid. Like, I'm not going to come to work, you know? But they were like, no, we just like, we want to see each other and like being together makes us, makes us feel like we can do it and it motivates us. And so I decided to give it another shot and we did like a big fundraiser and we started to like sell all the inventory online at like a discounted price. And anyway, the next three months were pretty crazy. Like we, we sold masks, we made hospital gowns, we did all these things just to like stay afloat. And it was pretty wild. You know, we made it happen because of the perseverance of the team. And we actually didn't miss a payroll for the entire pandemic, which was <laughs> honestly pretty miraculous. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was because of the, the solidarity and the, you know, and the perseverance of the team. And it was also what kept me motivated because I had a lot of personally like trying moments as well. Because during that time, San Francisco was also shut down for three months. So I couldn't have any employees help me either. So I ended up having to ship all the packages myself. That was another whole side story. But, you know, just to keep the company afloat, like I was the only one who could do shipping. And so I was basically shipping packages nonstop. And it was it was hard on everyone, of course, right? I think it was because of the team's solidarity and they're just like the fact that they cared so much that it was like, this is what's going to keep me motivated because if they can do it, then I can do it. <laughs> to have a team like that, that's really special. And that's a great segue for our next question. And that is, how would you like Tony to be remembered? What is the legacy you'd like to leave behind? The biggest thing I can say is that in a world with 
not a lot of good choices. I think that everybody at Tomei has always done their best and we are constantly navigating a lot of un- unfair systems and unethical systems. And it's not always easy to know what's the right thing necessarily or even make the right choice all the time. But I do think that I feel really grateful to work on a team and work with a group of people who always does try to do their best and make the right choice as much as they can with the resources they have. And I think that's really exemplary. And I see so many companies who are just doing the bare minimum to what they can get away with in the public eye. You know, they're doing whatever they need to do to just convince their customers that they're doing something ethical when in fact, they're really not. And, you know, I think that our guiding compass has always been trying to do the best we can within acknowledging that there is a lot of unfairness and there is a lot of inequity and we don't always have the resources to do everything that we want to do. But I think everybody gets that we are trying to do the best we can. And also, you know, what one thing I've, I've come to terms with over time too, is that unfortunately the system is not set up, set up for businesses like ours to succeed. And so at the end of the day, if we did have to close, I know that we would do it in a way that also aligned with those values. I think there is this idea that companies should just continue to exist forever. And the goal is to grow and be successful at all costs. And to me, if we hurt people or we compromise our values in the process, that wouldn't be success. You know, I would rather say, okay, and, and I had this conversation with, so we, we actually do have some really amazing investors. And I was lucky to find some people who really believed and got what we were trying to do. And I did have some conversations with them at the beginning of the pandemic. I think if we had to close, it wouldn't be because I just, I would rather, you know, close the company than have to make compromises that are not in line with our values. Because I don't think that would be really a measure of success for us. And so I think that if we close or when we close, (laughs) I think that everybody will know that we did it in a way that was in line with our values as a team. And that's what's important to me. And that's what's important to everyone else at Tomei as well. Well, Rachel, if you could be unreasonable and the sky was the limit, what would you do? What's what's the big dream for, for Tonle? Well, big dreams. Um, we have a lot of big dreams. We always have lots of ideas. One, one dream that we have is to start creating a, a bigger market for regenerative textiles in Cambodia. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we couldn't really find a lot of raw materials in Cambodia. I've actually come to learn that there are a lot of regenerative materials in Cambodia, but they're just not being harvested or produced in a, in a, a way that's scaled and accessible to people. And I think, you know, having learned about a lot of these textiles, I, I do believe there are ways to actually scale. I mean, scale is not always a, d- a dirty word. If, if, you're, if you're growing something and it's actually replacing something like polyester, that's good right? (laughs) So how can we create, you know, these scaled sustainable supply chains that are going to reach a broader audience and displace some of the harm that's being done? So I would love to continue to work on innovating some of those textiles and get them available to a larger audience, both within Cambodia and also internationally so that we can displace and disrupt some of those negative impacts of some of the supply chains, particularly around oil-based textiles, which are fueling a lot of global problems. I think that's, that's one big dream that we have. This has been such a great conversation and I've really enjoyed speaking with you and learning more about this incredible journey that you've had. 
And before we wrap up, I wondered if you could share some advice for entrepreneurs in the social impact space. First and foremost, focusing on synergy rather than competition. Because I think that a lot of small businesses try to emulate a competitive model. And unfortunately, we are none of us are going to get to scale with that mindset. And so if we work together and find out, you know, what people are already doing that you don't need to reinvent the wheel. And a lot of that also goes back to like, instead of everybody trying to go out and start their own business, you know, go and find out who's already doing things and see how you can support them before you decide you need to, you know, do that all over again. I think when I started my journey, I was really like alone and I kind of had to figure out a lot of stuff for myself. And also it was very early days of the sustainable fashion movement. But I wish I had known that there was more community out there and sought out that community and, and really figured out how to learn from what people have already done because otherwise we just end up repeating the same mistakes. I think being open to learn, more open to collaboration and getting help and figuring out how to work together in ways that are mutually beneficial. Typically a mentorship relationship. I I find a lot of mentorship relationships can be very hierarchical. And so there's this idea that a mentor, you know, has more experience and the mentee has less experience. And again, it's kind of that extractive relationship. But I think if we seek out the relationships that are based in reciprocity, where we can learn from each other and it's more horizontal, it's more, you know, sharing and it's, it's, it's how can we work in a way that is mutually beneficial rather than an extractive one-way relationship. So I think applying that to how we think about businesses, how we think about collaborations, how we think about working more together rather than seeing each other as competition. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we close? No, I think um, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I just, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about you know, to philosophize a little bit and, and, you know, talk about ideals, because I think that at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of conversation about strategy and, and, you know, raising money and all of this. But at the end of the day, it has to come back to what is the ideal, you know, that we're striving to and how do we really apply those principles to every aspect of what we do rather than just trying to, you know, tweak things a tiny bit. Um, to be more palatable, how do we actually really build the business models and how do we really build the systems that are rooted in the values that, that we are seeking. Many thanks for listening to this episode of the Social Impact Pulse. We hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your feedback and feel free to rate and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of the Social Impact Pulse is a project of the Artisan Gateway and the RISE Artisan Fund.